0: Dior Talks. Hello, I'm Justine Picardy, and welcome to the second episode of the Dior podcast on Christian Dior and the women in his life. In this episode, recorded at the V&A in London last year, I'm talking to Aurel Cullen, the curator of the V&A exhibition, Dior Designer of Dreams. We discussed three very significant women who worked with Dior from the time he set up his own couture house at the end of 1946. Firstly, his right-hand woman, Raymond Zenacker, who Dior described as my second self or my other self. Secondly, Marguerite Carré, the brilliant technical director of the couture house, who took Dior's drawings and turned them into workable toile. And finally, Mitzah Brickhard, the mysterious head of the millinery atelier and Dior's supremely elegant muse and the alluring epitome of chic.
1: So... In 1946, when Dior establishes his house, um, the backing of the textile magnate, Marcel Boussac, um, who's who's given him the go-ahead to set up on his own. And he has been working at the house of Lucien Lelong, um, alongside a fellow designer, Pierre Balmain. So they were the ones sort of churning out the designs at this house under the name of Lelong and Bal- Balmain leaves to set up on his own um, and for Dior I mean having you know his sister survived she came back and we were just saying earlier how really it's, it's almost like a catalyst for him
0: yes it's really extraordinary because Dior okay, he'd set up he'd, he'd had two art galleries both of which had failed, in part because he was ahead of his time um, in appreciating modernism, but also the wake of the Wall Street crash. And then he taught himself to draw, so he did fashion illustrations. And through those illustrations, he got his first job as a designer for Piguet and then at, at Le Long. But he hadn't shown the kind of the ambition to set up his own house. And Personally I think that is something to do with the the return of Catherine and the end of the war that gives him the the belief that it is worth doing something in his own name. And at this point Paris is is destroyed, really. I mean, it is literally battle-scarred, but it still bears the marks and the shame and the humiliation of the occupation and the fact there had been so much collaboration. But rather than at this point when de Gaulle, you know, returns to Paris, Paris is liberated, and Paris and France has to find a way to feel good about itself again. And I suppose French couture and French fashion is so much at the heart of what it means to be proud about being French. So Dior takes this hitherto unexpected move that is also, um, there's some magical thinking that's part of it, which we will return to, and makes this very bold decision to set up a house in his name Christian Dior and to do it at a time when the French French industry is in tatters I mean we talk about you know and obviously we were all worried about Brexit and people say it's the worst crisis in 500 years believe me if we'd been sitting here in 1940 or 41 you know when bombs were falling on London or if we'd been in Paris during the occupation or indeed if we'd been in Paris in 44, 45, 46 when industry had been decimated to take the decision to set up your own couture house
1: is a bold and brave thing to do some might say foolhardy Well, and also, in terms of the state of fashion internationally, you know, it was really felt that maybe things were over for Paris, maybe it was no longer the centre. And New York, America really eyeing up the market and the burgeoning fashion industry. Chanel had closed her house.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So Paris fashion has been decimated. And this picture is so wonderful because you see Dior largely surrounded by women, um, though, you know, there is that one man who must be... Yes, who is very important. But he's not
1: part of our talk. He's not part (laughs) of our talk. (laughs) Sorry,
0: Jack. But there are these key women that I'm going to let... Mm -hmm. Or introduced to you with her little magic. My little magic.
1: So we have first of all Raymond Zenacker. and Raymond was very important. She was um, at the house of Le Long when Balmain and um, Dior were working there, and Balmain actually asked her to leave with him because she was fantastic, um, sort of overseeing everything. And she said no because she had her eye on Christian. And so um, when he decides to set up, um, she sort of jumps ship straight away. And he talks about her as a second self. Um, and there's a nice quote in his autobiography where he says, "It's difficult to define her exact position in my house. Let it suffice to say she holds the reins of the business in her firm and capable grasp." So she was, you know, all over the, all aspects of the house. But not only the business part, she was also very involved in Dewar's personal life. Yes. Um, and and sort of became quite inseparable. You know, she was really sort of his right hand person. And
0: I think it's worth saying at this point there was still such a taboo about being openly gay Mm -hmm. and you know France was a Catholic country Mm -hmm. Uh, Dior had had a Catholic upbringing um, both the vichy france um which had all these sort of um insistence on family values you know men being men and women being back in the home and obviously the nazi regime where being gay was enough you know you Mm -hmm. would end up in a concentration camp that that taboo about being gay continued Mm -hmm. and so he needed walkers he needed you know a
1: beard mm-hmm. uh, which essentially you know she was and his last boyfriend Jacques Benita remembered being told by people that if you want to you know this to succeed you need to cozy up to, to Madame Raymond yeah. you know because she's the real power so and as we'll see maybe a little later on when we see Madame Delahaye sort of her, her sway, um, and how she really sort of kept things running at the house but also in Dior's personal life Um, The next person is Marguerite Carrey, and she is this lady here and she was poached by Dior from the House of Patou and she was incredibly exacting head of the ateliers, She was obsessed and possessed with the idea of of making things perfect. And so Dior would do his sketching and then Marguerite Carré would take them to the ateliers and work out the patterns and work out the twalls, which are these prototype garments, which you see um, in the exhibition. And if anybody hasn't yet
0: seen the exhibition, you're in for an extraordinary treat. But there is a, a whole room where you see those rather... Ghostly but incredibly evocative white twill—you know—that is the dress at its birth. But there is also the ghost of a dress there, I would say too. Yes.
1: No. Absolutely. And and another another quote from Dior where he said, Marguerite Carré is dame fashion in person. Nothing is ever beautiful enough or perfect enough for her. And I think that's quite telling because somebody else said she never stopped making the seamstresses cry. So even... even I mean, yeah. she
0: was, in a sense, his Chanel. So yes. Chanel, you know, who was trained as a seamstress mm-hmm. and Chanel who would remake an arm and, a, and you know and a sleeve sort of 38 48 times and would make her seamstresses cry you know Dior who wasn't trained in mm-hmm. you know in, in he, he came to it through illustration and then he did learn but in her he had that you know the woman with the scissors and the needle with that exacting approach
1: mm-hmm. and it's really interesting looking at his sort of designs particularly in the 1940s where he's still really experimenting with some sort of strange asymmetric constructions and how she manages to sort of realise that vision
0: and that's so, in, one of the great things about the Exhibition um, is that in the exhibition you will see some of Dior's um, drawings and designs from the time when he was at Lucien Lelong during the Second World War. And, you know, they're quite avant garde. And she turned those artistic, you know, designs into real clothes. And there is such
1: a skill in that. Mm -hmm. The, The third of the trio is miss here And she's a very interesting, mysterious character who worked at the House of Molyneux um, before joining Dior. Um, And he he said of her, she's completely cosmopolitan in her elegance. And he felt that her inimitable extravagances of taste would balance his Norman temperament and her presence in his house would inspire him to creation. So essentially, she's a muse. um, She also has the title of being head of millinery. um, But I'm not sure how practically... But she always wore a hat with a veil. (laughs) And there is
0: something about her as this sort of veiled woman um, she's a very, very enigmatic character, nobody really has got to the bottom of her origins, you know, we, we don't know how many husbands she had no, exactly, and <laughs> Still, apparently she wasn't received in polite society no, she was not received into polite society, she was seen as a sort of demi-mondaine courtesan um, and you know, veering slightly towards bad taste yes. and that's what's so great about this picture that you know Dior had such perfect bourgeois kind of impeccable credentials and perfect taste um, but that little element of the sort of the 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 unknown the mysterious the slightly unacceptable you see in Mitza Mm -hmm. the Sphinx
1: Yes, and she always wore jewels day and night. And she always wore leopard print. <laughs> and, and she always wore a veil. <laughs> And Bettina Ballard, someone we'll come to a bit later, um, American fashion editor, said Mitzah was a rare phenomenon in that she'd eliminated all other interests in her life. She understood only extravagant elegance, exactly the right attitude for haute couture. And there's a nice tale in um, Ballard's autobiography where she talks about Mitza coming to visit her in the countryside. And even though Dior, of course, loved gardens, she said Mitzah turned up in her country jewels, which were sapphires, apparently. (laughs) Nice. And And her country shoes. Country shoes, which were pale alligator skin heels. And so she sort of looked at the cobblestones outside and wavered and then drew her foot back into the parquet flooring, and that was as close as she got to.
0: But you see, I think that Mitzah is, you know, if you've got Catherine at one extreme, which is this heroine of the resistance. A woman who knew how to garden, you know, who'd suffered, but who kind of, as it were, was grounded. Mitsa, nobody really knows what she did during the war. She didn't have a very good war, really, Mm -hmm. um, I think it is safe to say. But this idea that somehow you could exist simply in a bubble of elegance and glamour, that you can exist without a past, Mm -hmm. um, it is this very particular idea of fashion at its most some would say absurd or mm. you know you might say pure and I think that Dior needs both mm. he needs the extreme as it is represented by mitzah and then he also needs the idea of of you know womanhood as represented by his mother and also his sister Catherine.
1: Mm. and and is sort of the epitome of artifice in it. yes is that, she is. Yeah.